Hello, everybody. My name is Robert Douglas, and this is yet another episode of Deploy Friday, the webcast and podcast hosted by myself and sponsored by Platform SH. Today's episode is quite interesting and quite fun. It's unlike any that we've done so far. I have three members with me today of the Open Infrastructure Foundation. And we're going to go into what that is, what kind of software they work with, why they exist, how they came to exist, uh, what you can get from them and do with them, how you can interact with them. All of that is going to be included in the show, but we're going to do introductions first. So I would like my guests to introduce themselves one by one, starting with you, Julia. Uh, hi, I'm Julia Creaker. I'm a principal software engineer at Red Hat. Um, uh, that's my day job. My work with the foundation is uh, I'm a director on the board of directors, and I uh, also help run one of the projects. And Julia, you're sitting in an RV right now, is that right? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so you're enjoying the lockdown by like locking yourself into a house on wheels. <laughs> uh, I had to get out of my house. <laughs> Check that. Sanity. All right. Well, thanks for being here. How about you, Mark? Yeah, so I'm Mark Collier, uh, Sparky Collier on Twitter, and uh, I'm the COO at the Open Infra Foundation and uh, was one of the folks that, when I was at Rackspace over about 11 years ago, helped get the OpenStack project started and we created a foundation and it's the OpenStack Foundation. Now, as we've grown, we've become the Open Infra Foundation. So I work full-time at the foundation and uh, these are a couple of my board members, so I have to be on my best behavior, but uh, that, that's how I fit into the picture. Excited to, to join today. Thank you. Excellent. And uh, Mohammed, how about you? Thanks. Uh, so my name is Mohammed. Uh, I'm the CEO at Vexhost. Uh, we're a company that specializes in infrastructure solutions, like uh, we have public cloud and private cloud offerings. Um, in the community, um, I'm one of the members of the OpenStack technical community, as well as one of the individually elected uh, directors um, on our foundation. I think that's something that will be interesting to talk about as we uh, get to chat about our foundation. Totally. I'm going to put a pin in the term individually elected, and we'll come back to that to know what that means. So I think that the first thing we should start out with, though, and I'm going to turn to you, Mark, um, seems, as, it, as it seems that you're maybe uh, the senior person involved with uh, the project the longest. Uh, what is the Open Infrastructure Foundation? And and you already given a little bit of its history. Maybe you can fill that out a little bit and tell everybody uh, on the show what you do and how you came about. Yeah, so the, the Open Infrastructure Foundation is a nonprofit and we're focused on helping build communities that write software that runs in production, specifically for infrastructure. So you think about cloud computing, out to edge computing, so kind of automated infrastructure, infrastructure as a service. We've, we've been through all the all the buzzwords up and down over the years, but this foundation really is backed by uh, 100,000 members all around the world. We have members in 180 plus countries. So it's a very, very global movement. And the nonprofit is there to really support and nurture the community, organize events, organize you know a lot of the development activity. But the developers really are, are all volunteers. In a, in a sense, you know they're not foundation employees. They're people that work at a lot of other companies like Red Hat, Vexhost, and on and on and on. You know, many many companies. So what we had, our origins were really because of the OpenStack open source project. In fact, just yesterday we had our twenty third on time release of OpenStack. So eleven years in, 
still one of the three most active open source projects in the world. And um, so about two years into starting OpenStack, we realized when we were, it was just Rackspace and NASA and some others working on it to make it bigger, more inclusive, uh, accelerate the adoption and the community building, we created a nonprofit foundation, the OpenStack Foundation. And then at the beginning of this year, we became the Open Infrastructure Foundation because the, the things we learned with OpenStack, we want to apply even bigger, make a bigger impact. So OpenStack is a part of one of the projects we support. It's the biggest, but we now have uh, seven different projects that we're working on or helping the community work on. So that's kind of a little bit of background, but as a nonprofit, you know, we, we bring together all the different stakeholders and just try to try to help everybody uh, work together collaboratively all around the world, very, very global. And so it's, it's an awesome job. I'm, I'm lucky to have it. Fantastic. So Julia, what's your purview within the foundation? So um, my purview is kind of, I'm both a contributor and uh, like Muhammad, I'm an individually elected director. Uh, so I can jump into that. Or yes, please. Kind of... Now okay. we've heard it twice, and and before the confusion becomes rampant, I need to know what does that okay. mean. Okay. So when you look at nonprofits, um, they can be structured any any number of different ways. Uh, in our case, the Open Infrastructure Foundation is a five hundred one c six nonprofit, which uh, in U.S. tax code is uh, basically a industry. Uh, can't, I can't think of the word. It's like an industry uh, group, basically. Uh, and that's largely because IRS Internal Revenue Service doesn't really like or trust the idea that you can have open source and nonprofits built around them. I know, it's very suspicious. Yes, it is. Uh, so as an industry association, basically you have member companies and then you have member bodies and you have um, member companies, member bodies, and you can basically have your bylaws however you want. In this case, in the Open Infrastructure Foundation or previously OpenStack Foundation, the way that was arranged was corporate sponsors had a seat. Uh, the A second uh, class of members called, I believe, gold members, or now platinum, um, were an elected, could elect eight members or to, the, to the board. And then the actual community members like the individual contributors could elect members to the board. And so we hold elections yearly. And um, I was selected by the member body to represent the member body. And that's my role in the foundation. And is it safe to presume that that means you've been a very active contributor to the software and the, the duocracy rewarded you by you being at the center of a lot of conversations and building trust, and that's how you got your votes? I, I guess. Yes. <laughs> um, I'll brag for her, yes. I, I, I did look at my stats recently. I went, how did I do that much? <laughs> but it's, um, you know, I, I've been involved for, what, seven years now? And I feel very strongly about the mission. I feel very strongly that we are creating value and that we enable other communities to build more, even more cool things. It's just, there's a level at which people don't want to care. And a lot of the infrastructure is at that level because it's, it's like thinking of like you're an engineer on a, on a starship. 
you know your warp drive. You don't you don't really need to know I don't know how the console works. Right. I mean these are the questions I never ask when watching Starship scenes, right? Like how does that work? No, 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 no. Just roll with it. It's 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 all good. OpenStack's got it covered. <laughs> um good Mohammed, what's your purview? Um, well, so I've been involved in the OpenStack, well, OpenStack Foundation initially, but now Open Infra Foundation for like roughly nine years, or maybe it's my 10th year now. Um, so I've kind of seen it grow and, and, and do a lot of progress. And throughout that, I've been lucky enough, well, thank, you know, thanks to all the, the many love, like amazing contributors that actually help and kind of give a lot of guidance and push towards, hey, you should try this, you should give a shot to that. And so I kind of started as just an individual contributor at the project. Um, and then with time, um, I got more involved in more of the deployment tooling. Um, and then with, with more time, because you know we are a deployer and as well as me being involved upstream in the deployment tooling, um, I was encouraged by some community members and said, hey, why don't you try joining the technical committee? So uh, to take a small aside is the way the governance overall works is you have the OpenStack or the Open Infra Foundation that kind of, you know, that governs, you know, has the copyrights and a bunch of stuff like that, legal stuff, let's say. And every project has its own governance. So the Open, Open Infra Foundation doesn't tell you how to run your project. It kind of stays there and helps out and makes sure everything is flowing properly, but it's up to the individual projects to decide on how they want to do their governance. And so in my involvement, at least in the OpenStack, we have something called the OpenStack Technical Committee, which the OpenStack project is you know, governed by. And so I started, I got involved in that, um, and then with time eventually kind of uh, became the, the chair of the technical committee, and then eventually decided that maybe it was time to see what the um, OpenStack kind of uh, being or be more on the Open Infra Foundation. Sorry, I keep saying OpenStack because we've been saying it for like eight years now. It's kind of hard to break the habit. <laughs> but muscle um, memory. Yeah, but um, so that's kind of the the main thing, right? So there's all these other projects that have all the their other uh, kind of way of of setting governance. Um, and open the Open Infrastructure Foundation is kind of at the top. And I I I am while I am. I have my own company and we deal with that. But to me, when I'm sitting on the board seat, it's purely in the interests of our contributors. And that's always how it's been. And in my opinion, being somebody who is running a company, usually the best interest of the community will very well and most likely line up with the best interest of commercial interest, like 99% of 100% of the time, probably. So um, it's a great you know, group of people to be working with. Great. So the Open Infrastructure Foundation came from the OpenStack Foundation and is thus very OpenStack centric, yep. even though you've brought in other projects. So um, I would like to hear, uh, I'm going to go with Julia again. We'll get to you, Mark. Um, can you give us an idea of the breadth and scope of OpenStack just in general? Because not everybody is really familiar with that software. Okay, so um, it, it's kind of hard to put into words, but if you think about all the individual things you need to create everything in software and to orchestrate everything in software, uh, you need lots of lower level pieces, lots of small engines here and there. 
that drive bigger engines that help move things forward. So OpenStack at its very core started with a, a few key projects, uh, mainly focused around block storage, virtualization, object storage, uh, networking, these sorts of key things and has since grown. So now there are OpenStack projects to install OpenStack. There are OpenStack projects to help manage the bare metal, which happens to be the project I, I lead. Uh, there, are open, there was a project that was an OpenStack that helped us run our CICD platform because it turns out that we were really good at destroying <laughs> CICD systems <laughs> because we have a model of never break, merging broken code. So we have just this whole slew of projects that we've had to build and orchestrate and integrate and basically allows you to use software to manage your infrastructure from your, as if you're basically have, you're using a cloud provider because you're making your own cloud. So the short answer is you got a bunch of computers in your closet and you want to be AWS on your own OpenStack. That's not, that's a pretty good summary. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Got it. <laughs> now I know what to do with those things. I've just been mining Dodge, Dodge coin until now. <laughs> like, what's that good for? <laughs> By a the way, today than yesterday. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> when you said platinum sponsors, I was just wondering how long it's going to take before you've got like Bitcoin sponsors, Ethereum sponsors, and Dogecoin sponsors, and like, who wants metal, right? Like, who wants who wants these like bars of silver? I don't want to be a silver sponsor. That's it's heavy. It's not appreciating <laughs> fast enough. So, Mark, I've got a question for you, and uh, that is, can you describe then the other software projects? Um, that you've taken on, how were they chosen? Were they spun off of OpenStack? Were they inspired by OpenStack? Do they have an affinity to OpenStack? Uh, mm -hmm. And what does it take to get into the Open Infra Foundation as a software project? Yeah, great, great question. So that was um, seven so, questions. By <laughs> well, uh, so uh, Julia actually alluded to one of these projects that came out of our uh, our efforts to build OpenStack, and and just to to kind of you know drop a couple of stats to put it in perspective, like OpenStack since its inception has over 8,500 developers that have contributed to it. We would do releases every six months. We just had the, the 23rd release yesterday. So, you know, in a typical cycle like that, um, you know, we get 17,000 changes merged in just six months from developers all over the world. So when you think about like having to take that much code from all over the world every single day, thousands of developers over the course of the project, uh, it broke a lot of existing tools out there. I mean, it just, it didn't, a lot of the stuff that we we took off the shelf, you know, open source or whatever, it just, it didn't quite scale or, or meet, you know, the needs of a community that distributed. And so one of the tools we built was called Zool. Uh, by we, I mean, you know, the community at large, uh, the OpenStack community. So Zool is a CICD system. Their, their slogan is stop merging broken code. And as development of software in general has just, picked up the pace and people are constantly trying to ship code faster, get it into production, whether it's for SaaS or whatever delivery you're trying to do to actually just get the code in, in front of customers. It's really easy to, in the old model, kind of write a bunch of code, then test it, put it in QA. Now we're talking about continuous testing. And, and part of the innovation with Zool is actually it tests the different changes that are being proposed before they even merge into 
the main branch. So on a daily basis, every single code commit, actually combinations of code commitments, when you have somebody in Germany and somebody in China and somebody in the US and Canada, they're all trying to, to uh, throw new changes in there. And it says the speculative execution, all kinds of wild stuff to kind of predict, well, how, what happens if we merge these in this order? Is one thing gonna break? So when you think about just the applicability to all kinds of software development, it's it's massive. And in fact, we have companies like Volvo, BMW, LeBancois, who's uh, the largest, one of the largest e-commerce companies in France. They're adopting Zool for just you know different use cases. They're not using it because they're using OpenStack. They may or may not be using OpenStack. They're using it because they have a lot of software developers. They want the code quality to go up. They want the speed to go up at the same time. So you want speed and quality, and that's that's the Zool project. Um, you know, I, it, I could probably uh, take up way too much time going through all the projects, but we have uh, Airship and Starling X, which are both kind of the best of uh, taking uh, components or uh, taking pieces and, and platforms from OpenStack and Kubernetes. You know, Kubernetes is, is ex extremely popular these days and people run it with OpenStack all the time. And both of those projects kind of help with edge use cases. So Verizon, for example, in the US, the, I think it's one of the largest mobile carriers in the world they're using Starling X in production. And so, you know, that's for their kind of mobile uh, uh, access networks, radio access networks. So this is kind of um, uh, what we've been doing is taking the OpenStack playbook, the, the, the philosophy of being very inclusive, being very global, allowing no matter what country you're in or what company you work for, you can, you can be part of the community, you can help test it, you can write the code, you can write the docs, you can run it. Just taking that, that what we've learned and, and you know, opening it up to more people. And that that's kind of what we're trying to do as we evolve the foundation is just take all the amazing tooling and methodologies and sort of philosophies, really. You, know, you could call it the OpenStack way if you want. Um, the four opens we kind of talked about as well, but we've taken that and, and started to to help other projects. Kata Containers is another one. So I've probably taken up all my airtime, but uh, that's kind <laughs> of the, 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 the idea in a nutshell. So you just mentioned one of the topics I wanted to get to, the four freedoms. Um, and we haven't talked about that yet, I don't think, not on the show. Uh, and anybody who's been exposed to free software is already you know, familiar maybe with the concept of the four freedoms, but you're talking about a totally different set of four freedoms. They're the four freedoms of free code, but you're talking about the four open freedoms. Uh, Mohammed, do you want to take this one and tell us what those are? Sure, yeah. So uh, so something that started actually again in, in OpenStack um, initially, um, and again, that's kind of the whole idea of the Open Infra Foundation is taking those and helping other projects leverage those to build communities around them or successful communities like we did um, in OpenStack. And so we have four opens um, inside that, that we that we that we came up with and so the four opens is open source open design open development and open community um, and so going uh, one by one over these um, the first one is um, open source which is in openstack and kind of hopefully anything that you know uses the four opens um, we don't build open core software we don't do anything where there's a part that's behind some sort of paywall or, or something that's you know, not available or, or features that are not fully exposed um, you know, to a specific, you know, specific user or anything like that. And so everything has to be 100% open source. There's no like 
faster version that some vendor has. There's no, and we don't allow for someone to put in some code so they can go ahead and like add a plugin to make it go faster or something like that. It's really got to work. Um, and in these open source as well, it has to be um, open source licenses. So um, there's a couple of different licenses that you know the 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 projects all have to use so that they can be kind of real open source. Um, we have open design. So some of the things that need to say is um, when you come up with a bunch of requirements and when we want to figure out and design a feature, the design part of it needs to happen in public. So, you know, if you're trying to come up with, um, you know, uh, Julia's here, so I'm thinking bare metal, right? Like, you know, uh, bare metal recently added a whole bunch of features about using, you know, RAID and so that it can boot machines with RAID pre-installed. And let's say you wanted to add support for RAID 5 or something else like that. So you can't just go and sit in a, in a, in a call um, and invite Julia into a call and sit there and chat about how you think you're going to do it and then push up the code. Um, you have to sit, you have to have a public conversation um, about what you intend to do. You have to get that documented uh, as a spec that the community needs to all agree on together to make sure that the use cases of the entire community, it, that it works for everybody. Um, the nice thing about this is we end up with better software because you have more folks saying what they think needs to be there and you'll have better use cases because you'll have people that are coming in and, and chime in on their use cases as well. So that actually helps more. So it's the community that controls the, the, the roadmap of the project and not any individual corporations or anything like that, um, which is important. Open development, I mean, that's a pretty straightforward one. All code commits are done in public, code review is done in public, nothing behind any walls, nothing that you have to be invited to do. Um, maybe you might need to be a core member to be able to merge code, but anyone can, you know, produce and push up code without any requirements other than some legal stuff. And then finally is open community. Um, so any, like going back to the open design, any discussions, any, anything that, you know, public emails are all archived over, you know, our, our mailing list archive. All the OpenStack official IRC channels are all logged and publicly available. So there's not at any point any discussion that's happening that you're kind of, you can't be part of. Um, and throughout these, you know, four opens, something that, that's really nice that the uh, projects usually do is um, the open, open for Foundation helps host something that we call the PTG or the project team gathering. And so that's a unique, nice thing about um, the foundation where it hosts all of these projects together. So back when you know we could travel to places, they would usually uh, find a place, and the PTGs were very important, and they were very specific in that this is not a sales event. You're not going to be scanning any badges. There's nothing. There's no selling. There's none of that that's going to happen. And at the PTG, um, it's just the developers coming together, and there's rooms available, and developers of different projects sit in rooms and just collaborate design, figure out what they're gonna do for the upcoming cycle. So these are usually hosted every six months. So every cycle you decide what you're gonna do for the upcoming next release. Um, and those are open for everyone to join. And now that it's, you know, we're doing them, hosting them virtually, they're, I feel like they're even more accessible. So they're free to join. Um, and so, you know, if, if you wanna be part of OpenStack, the next PTG I think is happening in a week or two, something like that. And you can just join and give your opinion and say, I think this is a good idea. I think we should maybe do this. And 
Uh, this is, I think, important to help with the four opens. It, it, it's next week, actually. We can yeah, yeah we, next we can send the link out. But uh, yeah, it's, it's in. It's just in a few days. If you want to join the PTG, uh, we can we can send that info around. And one of the nice things about the PTG is you sometimes do get operators that join the room or join the discussions. So you get these uh, these cloud operators from these huge giant companies that you don't see in the news, <laughs> and sometimes you're able to get, get some of the details out of them. Like uh, one of my favorite things is when operators come into these discussions and go, well, we ran into X, Y, and Z problems. Uh, we fixed it this way. We don't think it's the way to actually do it in the community. We'd like to see a fix upstream so that we don't have to carry that burden ourselves. And that's, that's a very common discussion we see in these, in these communities because a lot of times it's, they don't want the press, they don't want visibility, uh, but they want to give that feedback somehow or help improve the software. And a lot of times also that they may have rules and requirements that don't allow them to directly uh, push code basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. So next question is for you, Mark. Where does the money for the foundation come from? Sure, yeah. So I think um, we, we have, We've talked about platinum members and how we might need to rename that to Dogecoin. But um, you know, so we have we have uh, over sixty companies around the world that um, that fund the foundation. So those are you know basically silver, gold, platinum. And you know, if you would like to join, you go to openinfo.dev/join. You can become a member too. Um, it's free for individuals. You got to pay if you're a company. So that's basically where the money comes from. So you know, those companies. Everybody from you know the Red Hats of the world that obviously you know are, are massive in, in the open source world and, and startups and everybody in between you know Vexhost is a member as well so they're um, an awesome contributor to to what we do so you know just companies and all over the world that that really believe in our mission which is again build communities that write software that runs in production and if you look at just like the OpenStack example you know that is currently about a seven billion dollar market around the world so you know that's that, that gives companies a reason beyond just uh, uh, you know goodwill to to want to invest in what we're doing and make sure the community is very effective and producing software that runs in production and um, yeah so I don't know if that if that is answers your question or if you, you have any so what does a red hat uh, or a vex host get for the money they pay for their membership is it the ability to join those uh, uh, PTGs uh, and and be able to talk about their needs. What 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 are the benefits? Yeah, it's it's a good question. So they're they're all shaking their heads. So um, <laughs> <Nope>. yeah, it, <laughs> it, it, no, it's a very good question because I think that um, it's somewhat counterintuitive because you know we we're very very protective of the fact that the four opens mean that writing a check or not writing a check ha has no bearing on your ability to participate in the project. You don't have to write the foundation a check for anything to participate in the PTG, to com contribute code. And so, you know, these companies, I think first and foremost, just wanna see a neutral home that helps organize these activities. It's not an exclusivity thing, it's actually an inclusivity thing. So it's, it's a bit counterintuitive. Do you think of sort of the for-profit, you know, mindset of like, oh, okay, they're paying, they must be getting something that's really exclusive, but really what they're, they're doing is they're giving us the resources we need to create a facilitation of or an organization of these types of events to bring people together to do the testing and infrastructure that we need. We have infrastructure engineers on staff that are dedicated to all this build, uh, helping operate all this build infrastructure. So these 17,000 code commits that are being merged 
in a six month cycle, you know, can be can be tested and we can have quality code. So they're they're in it for the long game. You know, when, when we went around and talked to companies and said, look, as we become the open infrastructure foundation, here's here's our vision. We're looking at the next decade of open infrastructure. Like what is the work ahead? We need to enable things like GPU support and have better enablement for ARM architectures and FPGAs and like the needs of infrastructure, although the, the, the kind of hype has moved up to higher levels in the stack and what people talk about on Twitter every day, like as, as Julia said earlier, the warp, the warp engine is, uh, warp technology is not standing still. So that, that underlying infrastructure, a lot of work needs to go into it. And I think when, when these companies are looking at a $7 billion opportunity or 20 billion, when you, when you look at the, the larger infrastructure landscape, um, you know, they're saying, how can we move a little bit faster and the way to do that is through collaboration. And the most efficient way to do that is open source. And to do open source well, a foundation can help facilitate that. So it's really about the long game and um, you know, companies seeing a much, much bigger opportunity. So that, you know, the, the amount of money that, that they're putting into the foundation, they, they get back many fold and just seeing the industry move forward more quickly, more efficiently, kind of getting this, uh, staying up to this breakneck pace of infrastructure automation. So, and do you have a sales yeah. team to sell that? Because it sounds like it's it's a hard value to convey to a company uh, before they write you a presumably fairly large check. Yeah, I mean it's it's not your traditional sales cycle for sure. Um, I think that you know myself and, and Jonathan Bryce, who's our executive director, you know we're always talking to individuals at, at different companies, and you know we have a a team that's that's focused on marketing and, and working with all of our our members. So. Uh, you know, we have we have a, a, a nice uh, group of people that are helping to organize everything we're doing. And we don't have like, a, I would say, a salesperson. Um, it's really, you know, we think that our work in serving the community and making the industry move a little bit faster every day kind of sells itself, hopefully, um, and through the results we deliver versus kind of a traditional, you know, VP uh, of sales kind of kind of person on staff because we we are a nonprofit, so you know everything is a little bit counterintuitive. But uh, and there's no like uh, backdoor kill switch; you can't turn their service off or anything. No, <laughs> no, uh, unfortunately not. Uh, no, we we not only that. There's not even tracking in the software. So the the funny thing about it is we know of these incredible users of OpenStack all over the world, but there are a bunch we don't know about mm -hmm. because we just have you know it's free software. If they want to run it and they don't want to tell us, I mean. I happen to know that most of the large banks in the world went for OpenStack, but I can't tell you their names because they tell you in the hallway and they're like, we can't talk about this publicly. So, you know, it's fine. We don't, we don't need to shout them all from the rooftops, but CERN, I'll give a shout out to CERN, the large Hadron Collider. I wore, wore this shirt just so I could say thank you to Tim Bell who's also on our board. Uh, but yeah, we at CERN's a large Hadron Collider. They have over 300,000 cores of compute. They analyze all that data coming off of the collider which is trying to find the missing 95% of mass in the universe or something. I'm not a physics expert, but uh, put it somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's wild. It's around here somewhere. I'm like looking for it. It's probably in my office. You can't see the messy part of my office, but it's most likely over there. Uh, but they haven't found it yet, but they've got an awesome, huge cloud. And so, you know, we're doing a lot of um, good in the world. I, I like to think uh, with the scientific progress. And then of course there's all kinds of commercial users. Verizon has millions of, of compute cores. They manage with uh with OpenStack, so long-winded answer, but uh, hopefully that that sheds some light on it. Does any of your software run the storage array that they have? They've got uh, at CERN. They've got this amazing room that, as far as you can see, in basically every direction, it's this uh, something like 
five terabyte tape drives and so, they have they, random access search capabilities a scientist who wants to know something from all that data can do a random access query and then the the query computes and that turns into a set of robotic instructions where a robot will drive down the the, the aisle pull out a five terabyte tape drive bring it back to the reader load that memory into a storage facility put it back in go get the other one because it's random access right it can be anywhere in the entire room and it could be multiple of them and then some days later they get the answer to their query after the robots have fetched all their tape drives julia so they I was on a tour right before the pandemic, and uh, we walked by uh, one of these, or actually two of these giant tape arrays. And I don't remember what if they said it was open source, but it's definitely some a piece of software they developed in-house to manage that tape array specifically. Um, I think they probably have some sort of driver to help facilitate some other other related aspects, but that's that's largely for their batch processing and how they get the data into their batch processing systems. Mm -hmm. Fascinating and very cool to look at. That's like oh, yeah. <laughs> right around the corner is the, the room where uh, the two um, uh, computers that Tim Berners-Lee launched the internet on uh, are sitting there. It's a yep. great place. And, and sorry, CERN tangent, you did this, Mark. Uh, I, driving, I can't help it, I love you it. You drive through cornfields out into like the countryside of France and Switzerland. And it's like, I don't see anything around here. And then all of a sudden the biggest power generation unit you've ever seen in your life is standing up in the middle of the cornfields. Like, ah, <laughs> we must be arriving at CERN. <laughs> Big transformer. You should have uh, the CERN team on just do a dedicated episode. They're super oh, that would be amazing really people. We can put that up for you. All right. So, um, Mohammed, is the is as an individual contributor, is the part of the software that you work on uh, the most Zool because it's the CI/CD part, or no? Well, I think oh, as a deployer, I always end up dabbling in like many different projects because there's like so. While I've been involved a lot in deployment tools, um, as a deployer, you always have kind of issues, a little bug with the software here or there. And so me personally, I've been involved a lot with OpenStack and all the different OpenStack projects. So while you're not gonna see me at the top of the list of every single, of, of one specific project, I'll be on a list on many different projects. Um, so, you know, whether, whether we're working on some bare metal stuff and contributing fixes there, whether we're working on some virtualization issues and some stuff there, and whether it's Zool as well, that's something that um, uh, we're involved in as well. And I think that honestly, Zool is probably one of the really, really interesting projects um, that I think probably has a, an impact on like, or could have a positive impact on any software development project. So, because I think a lot of the stuff that we talk about is very infrastructure, you know, purpose. And a lot of people these days uh, don't run their own infrastructure. Uh, you know, that's just a, a reality that sometimes exists, right? And, but I think Zool is one of those interesting projects where, you know, you could use it still, even if you, use infrastructure anywhere. Um, so what's really interesting is um, with Zool, it runs jobs. Uh, so every time it starts to get a, a you, you make a change, right? You, you push up a change or a pull request. Uh, and the nice thing is Zool started with supporting Garrett only and running jobs inside OpenStack. 
That was like the only thing that it did because that's what we used it for. And as Zool grown, now it can run jobs on AWS or Google Cloud or against OpenShift or at Kubernetes clusters. And it can receive jobs like from a pull request on GitHub or GitLab or Garrett. So, you know, with more in individuals and, you know, involved, we ended up with more features. But the really nice thing is, you know, if you push up a change, Zool will actually check out the current state of the main branch and put your change on top of it and then test it with the change on top of it already. So you're always getting an idea of what your change is going to look like once it's merged, um, which prevents that whole thing where, like, you know, if I make a co contribution that touches component A and changes the API, um, and I'm based off a specific point off the main branch, and Julia happens to be working on that same thing as well, but she changes another aspect um, that touches it. When my, when my stuff merges, um, Julia's change is just going to break. And if you merge it, it'll just be broken because it was never tested against the actual final state um, of the branch. And so that all happens on its own, as well as cross-dependency tooling. So let's say you have a library and you have your application, and you want to make a change in your library, but you want to test that that change actually worked in your application, you can actually, in your commit message, just say, like, depends on this other change, and then Zool will automatically check out that specific version of the library, including that change, and test your application against it. So you can actually check it before even releasing a version of your library or merging code that you end up having to revert or something is that, like that. Is that code that would mainly be, like, at the application layer, so web applications or things running on the infrastructure or is the, are, are it, we talking about the infrastructure so code it doesn't really matter and that's okay. the beautiful thing about this um like in the project i work on specifically we have unit tests we have like uh, we have some uh, functional tests and then we have a slew of integration tests and uh full integration jobs so essentially what we're doing is we're exercising every level that we possibly can. And they're also all different jobs that have been defined in Zool. So we have a job that ends up running unit tests of various flavors. We have some functional testing that runs. Then we also have these this entire batch of scenarios that are different configurations with different needs. And it's kind of why we end up getting a lot of operators tending to contribute that back tiny, tiny fixes is because sometimes when you twist a certain knob a little bit of a different way, you get different results. Or you need a specific configuration in your environment to meet your operating operating needs. Okay. So can that, can that, I jump in here after you're oh, done? Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that's the true power of open source is that collaboration and that end result. But you have to define all these jobs and they can look like anything. Okay, that makes sense to me, Mark? Yeah, I just think, you know, kind of to, to their both their points, like it, Zool is applicable to anyone who's writing software, which sounds like super broad, but like to give a concrete example, like uh, Volvo, for example, they're writing software that runs in their cars for self-driving autonomous driving. So they're using Zool in the process of developing, testing and shipping code that ends up in an automobile on the road. And we all know Volvo takes reliability very, very seriously. So you know, when you think about how much more reliant we all are in our day-to-day -day lives on software, and we know software is not always great, right? Like software breaks all the time. So anything we can do as a community to ship something like Zool, get more people using it, improve the quality of that software. I mean, the applicability, it, it, it affects more and more lives. And it's, it's just such a powerful tool that 
you know, to Muhammad's point kind of transcends like, is it infrastructure or not? It's, it's, it's actually not, it's, it's not really uh, limited to infrastructure as a service or cloud. It's really, if you're writing software and you're one of, you have a lot of people contributing to it, you want the code quality to be good, but you also want to go really fast. You know, that's what Zool is. And I, that's why they say, you know, stop merging broken code. And, you know, Volvo wants you to merge into the left lane and everybody's trying to merge. So we want to do those merges safely, but also uh, faster. And so that's just one example. Like that code might end up running anywhere, but in the development process before you put it into production or as you're trying to create new versions so you can maybe send an update over the air down to the cars out on the road. You know that that pipeline of of innovation that's coming out of software, really anywhere you think of that in in play across our economy all over the world, um, they can benefit from Zool. So it's a very it's a, has a has a big impact. And it's really just getting started. A lot of people don't know about Zool, so we're kind of upping our efforts to educate people and, and invite them in to try it because it's it's very powerful. Yeah, thanks. So a, a little note on that. Um, so you know how usually most projects will have like a uh, like a Travis CI badge or some form of CI badge that's going to say like built passing or built failed or whatever. So if you go to the docs page, I mean, recently there was a change to allow for some periodic pipelines. So let's just ignore that. But if you go to that, the, the badges page on Zool, uh, because Zool controls the merging of the code. And so you don't actually merge branches. You tell Zool to merge and then it does the test and then it merges once it passes all tests. The... It's just a static file. Like there's no dynamic thing behind it. It's just a static file that says Zool gated because you don't need to have it dynamically checking the API if the most recent job had passed or not because your primary branch is never broken because it, no broken code had ever merged. Um, and so it's kind of like an interesting thing to, to kind of think about that you know, our badges are just like a Kind of almost as a joke, like, yeah, I'll just say something that says passing all the time and it'll look like my jobs are always passing. But that's the reality when you're using Zool. Uh, so th there is another reality. And <laughs> uh, if you have things that you don't directly control, yes, you can eventually be broken. Yeah. That, yeah I was thinking like ignoring the bit rots <laughs> and, you know, things like that for yeah. the most part. It's, yeah. uh, it's cool. Uh, Upstream libraries that are that are not maintained by the community occasionally we do see some breakages, and that that's that's where things break. Uh, but we also identify the known versions, and we tr track those versions too. So that's one of the things that helps Zool helps us a lot, where we can check those requirements, make sure that oh this looks good, okay we know the good version. Oh we tried to update the version and it broke. Yeah. Well there's a problem there. We need to fix it. So what ends up happening is with the, such large communities is we end up contributing fixes into libraries, all sorts of things in other projects because we identify the failure fairly early. And that sounds actually really interesting and uh, useful potentially to um, the platform SH case as well. So um, we don't talk so much about our product and company on the show, but what it does is it takes uh, a Git repository that's both the application code and the definition of its infrastructure Mm -hmm. and and kind of builds that and then therefore when you create a branch of that it builds that too and it's kind of a common concept these days um with the added detail that it uh does a copy on write copy of all of your persistent data into that new environment so you're always testing on a, a perfect copy of your production code and data sanitized if you need it to be mm -hmm. 
but the merging of the so the the workflow that we always conceive of is like a, every developer will go out and like create a a, a PR for their change, and that creates a, a you know a new branch, a new environment uh, for testing. You test on that, and you do all the testing, and then a human goes and merges it. So human goes and merges it. But it sounds to me like Zool actually gives you. Uh, uh, the tooling where the programmers could create their PRs and that would basically, if they had the test framework in place that they trusted enough to like, you know, you know there's always the stakeholder at the end, right? Like you can't. Yeah, you know, there is still a manual approval. So usually with the differences, rather than a human merging the code, it's a human approves of this code. And then Zool does the merging and everything afterwards. Okay. That's I, cool. I, that makes sense. I think it's it's one of the things where we can we see many cases where you know human may, may say it's good to merge, but <laughs> the CI system may go no, <laughs> and yeah. that just means we have to revisit. Or uh, there's a transient failure when we're running the job, which those things do happen. Um, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> especially at our scale, um, that's the curse of scale of giant huge CI scale. Yeah. Everything breaks at scale, and so we've we've broken everything that can be broken. Well, maybe not. I shouldn't curse it that way. But we've, we've, we've we've run into plenty of those things. It's Friday, Mark. Let's not <laughs> it's deploy Friday. What they call deploy say Friday. that on a, say that on a Monday, maybe. <laughs> it's deploy Friday. We're supposed no, to. No, Muhammad. Um, it's deploy Friday. Mark's got Mark's got the right I'm on idea. Theme. No, I I just want to say you like, use the right software. You can deploy on Friday. That's right. I I just want to say like all this software development we're talking about, all these tools, all this pipeline. It's absolutely driving more demand for the underlying infrastructure. Like we we yeah. do care about infrastructure, and that's you know the open source, uh, open stack pieces, and Airship and Starlinks and Kata and these other projects. Like more infrastructure is being used than ever, and I don't see any sign that that's going to slow down. So this incredible ex explosion in in infrastructure needs and five G is going to change the game in terms of edge and bottlenecks and all that kind of stuff and latency. It's just it just continues to go up, up and away. So we have sort of two big trends here. We have more open source than ever, which is great, but also very complex, right? It's hard to make it all work together when all the pieces are moving around and releasing new versions all the time and more infrastructure than ever. So when you look at these trends together, I mean, that that's kind of what, where the, the work of, of our community and foundation is focused is trying to, to wrestle with that because these are very positive trends for humanity. More open source is good, more automated infrastructure is good. But it's it also you know it's like more infrastructure, more problems. I guess I would say, and so we're we're trying to tackle those. And you know, it's it's a fun fun space because it's far from solved because we're just you know we're just growing at insane rates as as human beings like consuming infrastructure. All this software needs infrastructure, so that's what makes it fun to be at, at the layer of the warp the warp drive uh, engineering team. Well, so I, let's I, talk I, about Starling XIO for a second, if if we can. Um, uh, that caught my attention because uh, it it's it's used for managing infrastructure at the edge who, mm -hmm. who can define that for me give me paint paint some pictures for me about what that is so the edge is uh, one of the things I learned very early on in discussions with operators and telecoms specifically is it's impossible to define the edge in common terms. So we end up with an edge working group, which is still in, in existence. And it it's, it's really what individual contributors view as the edge. And in many cases, it's like your radio access networks uh, or your, uh, your content distribution cabinets that are 
designed to cache your movies for the neighborhood to watch. Those sorts of things. Your but neighborhood they, has one of those? I, it might. I don't know. I, I wish my neighborhood had there, a box with all the movies cached in it. There, there <laughs> it used some, to be Blockbuster, but now it, like it's gone, right? There's some weird boxes on, on the neighbor on the end of the street, so you never know. <laughs> so you think those are like caching all my Netflix? That'd be so uh, cool. Again, you never know. If you think about how content 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 yeah content distribution networks work, um, it all started with putting servers and data centers. And now it's getting closer to putting servers as close as possible to users so that you have minimal latency. And that's also important for like 5G and, and self-driving cars because they need that extra piece of data. Oh, wait, there's there's a problem ahead. I should do something different than my current path. <laughs> so is so the it, Volvo the edge? It could be the edge. It could be the, the radio access network your cell phone talks to. It could be the cabinet on the end of your street in, in a theory in theory it could be servers in your own home if you have them um so it, what does the software help me do with that then the software specifically helps you manage that infrastructure helps you abstract away the, the the lower level layers so you don't have to really think about them and makes it easier for you to manage them the system so if I a lot of those tasks you might have done manually before so we're, yes. we're taking the software approach is replacing Things that might have been done manually. So if you've got uh, if you've got this infrastructure in every Starbucks in the world, or or uh, in every radio access network, and you know uh, near every tower, or anywhere that's highly distributed, it's very very costly in terms of time and people to to like manually manage that stuff. So this is why edge computing is actually even more important to be super repeatable and reliable, and and that the software a software approach is absolutely necessary, and then good software is necessary. Sorry to interrupt. I just I think that's like uh, part of why um, it's key. That's absolutely uh, key, and that's it's hard to put into words because people don't agree with the edges. Except it's one of those we agree we can't agree. So, but I'm so foggy on what Starling XIO actually can, uh, does. Yeah, so I can talk a little bit about if that's okay. Yeah, uh, Starling X. So for Starling X, um, the need for it came out because you know traditionally data centers were like people had infrastructure in very big data centers and they had hundreds of servers and it was like one giant deployment that ran everything and you had to manage one giant deployment. Um, but as the you know the the as people start to manage infrastructure more with automation, um, they started wanting doing things like you know. For example, let's say you know I am a Starbucks and I want to manage um, the POS systems across all the Starbucks branches around the world. Um, and I want to be able to have my software team develop and use CI/CD pipelines and you know interact with all these systems using APIs and stuff like that. So previously that was something that was very hard because obviously you know you don't have entire clouds and API driven access to these small nodes usually you know we're not talking about you don't have a hundred nodes inside of a Starbucks you might have a small server that doesn't even barely have any cooling or anything like that um, and so the idea with this uh, with something like Starling X is that it allows you to have these very small miniature deployments and as much as you can of them but they're orchestrated in a way where you can easily deploy, deploy them and you can easily manage them at scale because managing one big cloud is an interesting problem of scale because you have a lot of systems, but managing 
a hundred clouds is another a hundred one note clouds or one one hundred note cloud are two huge different problems to, to figure out because you have things like lifecycle. How do you update them? How do you keep them up to date? You know, and there's other things like resilience. Um, I know if I maybe quote me or not, I might be wrong, but I think Starling X has been used even like in like planes or stuff like that. And those are like places where like you need it to be ultra reliable. You need it to be able to self-recover. You need it to be able to lose all communication, but still be able to operate on its own, um, even if it's completely disconnected. So the idea of, of Starling X and the edge is, you know, I think maybe we might not agree where the edge is, but the idea of building a cloud that is not necessarily inside of your data center, but it's kind of its little island and could fully lose connectivity, could be completely unreliable, but how do you minimize the minimize the unreliability or maximize the reliability of it? Awesome, thanks. And so the example that I came to mind was if I were a smart TV manufacturer, internet connected TV, and I wanted to manage the software updates on that TV, is that the software I would turn to Starling X? If you were. I <laughs> if you're looking to run VMs on your on your TVs. yeah, I mean, possibly, but I, I think that the the more common use cases where there's a need for more processing power than you would have just like in a TV, so that it's not quite going to that level of the edge. But if you're having content delivery, if you have a content delivery network because you're Hulu or, or somebody like that, and you you need to make sure that that's you know one step away from the television at a nearby point of presence somewhere, that maybe that's the use case. But I would say like. But really, the, another way to, to think about this, Muhammad described this really well, which is like it's cloud-like technologies in a place that don't look anything like a data center. So mm -hmm. they want those. They, they they need they need lots of compute storage and networking, and they need it close to where the customers are, where the customer experience is. Uh, but you know, it's not a data center, right? So you need a different sort of mindset when you're running a hundred or a thousand little mini clouds or micro clouds. A lot of the technologies get reused. You, you, you can use OpenStack and Starling X does use OpenStack. And Starling X, I think you can think of as this tightly integrated solution that allows you to provision like virtual machines and networks and storage that you would think of traditionally with an OpenStack kind of thing. And it uses that, it uses Kubernetes to kind of bring in the, the container orchestration pieces, but it's more uh, tightly integrated for that really small environment where you don't have, you don't want to send somebody out there to kind of log in and try to try to administer it, right? You want to be able to do it remotely, replicate it thousands of times, and you know, uh, manufacturing is another good example. So if you have like this giant uh, manufacturing facility, a, a ro ro roboticized manufacturing facility, you have sensors all over the place, and you want to orchestrate all that, you need compute storage and networking at the edge. That's basically cloud, right? And so it doesn't look like a data center. It's inside of a manufacturing facility at like an auto manufacturer, Toyota or somebody like that. And you imagine these sort of uh, next generation data, uh, not data centers, next generation manufacturing facilities that are highly, highly automated. So that puts demands on like collecting all the sensor data, storing it somewhere, analyzing it. So they may have custom applications that sit on top, but the need to have that data center like cloud like power, but have it inside the manufacturing facility, that's where Starling X really shines. And so it's it's a different sort of way of delivering the same types of benefits that people have learned about through cloud. It's just taking it out of the data center and putting it closer to the application. And it says newly open sourced. Who open sourced it? Uh, yeah, so um, the some a couple of the companies that originally were, were big contributors to it was uh, Intel and Wind River. So Wind River is known for kind of their uh, industrial um, 
solutions that, you know, they, I think they even have some software that's running on the mission to Mars. It's active right now with the Mars Rover. So, you know, they're, they're used to building very, very, uh, reliable, long-term embedded type systems that absolutely cannot fail, right? And so historically that sort of stuff maybe wasn't always built in the open, um, but it's just another industry, another delivery model that's embracing open source. And so you saw that with Wind River, they embraced OpenStack, they embraced Kubernetes, they came together and said, let's, let's build something purpose-built for the edge using those kind of components, but even more tightly integrated than what you would just get sort of downloading the source code of OpenStack or Kubernetes and kind of rolling your own. And so they have also have a commercial product based on, on Starling X, but it is open source, it's an open community. So that's that's uh, probably the, the biggest company uh, initially that's kind of put tons and tons of resources into making Starling X success. And, and since then we've have a lot more contributors from around the world but that Wind River, I would say, if you wanna, you know, sort of think of the, the company that, that really kicked it off that's uh, that's the, the best example. Great, thank you. So we are coming up to the top of the hour, but I have one more question that actually slipped my mind when we were talking about the four freedoms. Uh, your logo is comprised of four bent lines. Is that a tip of the hat to the four freedoms themselves? It is, it is. I'm glad you asked. I don't, I don't know if we've actually gotten that question before, but... Uh, but uh, James, who's, who's a designer that works at the foundation and, and Wes, uh, they will be super excited to hear that you picked up on that because that was actually part of their, um, I don't even know if, if Julia and Muhammad know this, but that is I actually what, the, yeah, that, that was actually, oh, maybe it's an Easter egg, but it, it's, it, it's just great. They're going to be so excited that you picked up on that. It is in fact modeled after the four opens. So um, yeah, that's exciting. They're, they're going to be happy you you asked that. So well, I like to them. I liked it that you put your philosophy and your, um, yeah, your philosophy front and center in your messaging on the website and that uh, you, you present yourself as if everything about your organization flows from those principles, even the logo and the things that I heard about the PTGs and everything and the governance models actually corroborates that messaging as well, that everything does flow from those four opens. So I thought that was worth mentioning and, and very cool. So thank you. Awesome. So Julia, Mark, Mohammed, thanks so much for this conversation. It was really lovely. Uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're going to do more OpenStack uh, presentations on Deploy Fridays in the future. So maybe we'll see each other here again. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having All us. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.